everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and, of course, the Relevant Radio mobile app. We're looking at St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So exciting. Let's pick it up now again in chapter 7 where we left off. And why don't you just open up your Bible with me to Romans chapter 7, and we will pick it up here. Really, I want to pick it up in verse 11. In verse 11. Uh, He said, sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. All right, so what on earth is he talking about there? He's kind of picking up a conversation that we started in the last episode. So check the podcast. You can binge listen to all of them on the relevant radio app. But essentially what he's doing here is he is portraying sin as kind of a a very, very dangerous animal, a crouching tiger, a hidden dragon, to refer to a very popular movie from a few years ago, ready to pounce, ready to tear you to shreds. In fact, he uses two interesting words here in Romans 7, verse 11. He says, sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me. Now, when he says, it deceived me, what does that mean? He's kind of referring back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. When Eve was deceived by the serpent or beguiled by the serpent, as it were, it's kind of the same word. And so he says, sin deceived me and by it killed me, killed me. And that's kind of a reference again to the book of Genesis chapter 4. And this is the famous account of Cain and Abel. And and St. Paul is very fond of referring to Genesis here in his letter to the Romans. Let's see what it says in Genesis chapter 4. And of course, as you know, you can access the Genesis series on the Faith Explained Archives on the Relevant Radio website. Did a real deep dive into all the chapters of Genesis. So foundational for understanding all scripture. And St. Paul knows this full well. So this is um, what happened right before Abel is murdered by his brother Cain. Let's look at what it says in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must master it. And of course, Cain didn't do that. It's this kind of idea that Sin is crouching at the door, somewhat like a panther, ready to pounce. But he did not resist. Cain, of course, murders Abel. And that is uh, the first murder in human history. It leads to terrible, terrible consequences. And just the proliferation of sin gets worse and worse and worse in Genesis until the flood washes all the evil and evildoers away. So Paul uh, says all that to set up what he's going to say in the next little section here in his letter to the Romans. So let's pick it up now in verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13. St. Paul writes, Did that which is good then, he's talking about the commandment, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Essentially what he's saying is that the the gift of the commandments really makes obvious what sin is. 
Let's look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So that's uh, the section here that starts with verse 13 in Romans 7 and ends at the very end of the chapter with verse 25. So Paul is really sharing here something that you and I can relate to very well. Wanting to do the good but not having the will to actually do it, to pull it off. And so we, we, we have this experience where we have this because of the after effects of sin, even after baptism, it's called concupiscence. It's a $5 theological word. We still have to struggle against something that kind of darkens our intellect, weakens our will. We don't seek what is true and good and beautiful all the time, the transcendentals as they are known. We want these things. We know that they're good, but sometimes we just can't bring ourselves to do what we ought to do. Very much like what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John, they were supposed to keep watch with him. They didn't do it. Remember, they fell asleep. And he said, guys, can you not keep watch with me even just for one hour? They wanted to. Believe me, they wanted to, but they just couldn't do it in, the, in that state. They were tired. They were exhausted. They were stressed, and they, and they couldn't pull it off. But in there, there's a deeper metaphor. There's a deeper symbolism there about ourselves. And Jesus says, after after they kind of failed in this task, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so this is really, really important. We can fall asleep in the spiritual life. Uh, Dr. Peter Craved, he likes to say that we have spiritual sleeping sickness very often in life. And we need frequent alarms to wake us up. And this is where pain can be God's megaphone in, in that sense. And so, now, having said that, we need, to, we need to understand rightly what Paul's really saying here. Like, let's look at verse 19, for example. When St. Paul says, For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And then in verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Be very, very careful about this verse because some people like to use this as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. They want to say, hey, the devil made me do it. It's, it's not me. It's sin that lives within me. Well, 
it's sin, okay? It's it's not always, now, there's no question we can come under temptation from the evil one. There's no question that that's possible. But he can't make you do anything. You always have free will. And the temptations are very strong. There's no question people sometimes give in to those. Sometimes those temptations come from malevolent spiritual forces, but very often they come from within ourselves, this sin that we're drawn to in, in, internally. And as Brent uh, Petrie says in, in his lovely uh, explanation of Rome and sin and salvation, great audio series, he said, this is a very common uh, experience of all of us in, in the Catholic life. How often has it happened in your life and in mine when just when we want to do something good, just when we've set up our minds, we've made up our minds to do something good, a temptation of some sort, whatever, whatever the source might be, comes into play to pull us away. Here, here's an example. And, and Petrie gives this example. You think to yourself, I should go to confession. I really need to go to confession. But then as soon as you have this thought, other thoughts come into play. I don't have time, number one. I, I, I'm really too busy to do this. Or you think the priest is too busy to hear my confession. After all, priests are very busy people. I don't want to bug this guy. And then you start thinking, well, maybe, maybe what I did really wasn't that bad. After all, you start to rationalize a little bit and you start to tell yourself rational lies, as it were. That's what rationalizing sometimes is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Excuses, excuses, excuses come in just at the moment that you've decided that you want to do and will the good. And, and that can happen in a lot of different contexts, in a lot of different settings. Just as God warned Cain, look, sin is crouching at the door. There is always something there just before at this moment of decision, you're about to do something really good, or perhaps you're considering doing something wrong and sinful and evil. This temptation comes in and the devil lays a trap and you can make a terrible choice. And really what, what's happening here is concupiscence. And this is something that we have to keep fighting against again and again and again in the Catholic life. You're listening to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. Let's look here closely at verse 23. St. Paul says, I see in my, back it up a little bit to verse 22. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. He, he can see that the law of God is good. The commandments are good and holy. But then in verse 23 of chapter 7, he says, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Whenever St. Paul talks about members, okay, members only, he, he's really talking about the parts of the physical body. He's talking about our, our human faculties, if you will, uh, the human desires that we all have and inclinations in different areas. And so he says, don't use the members of your body as weapons of sin, weapons of unrighteousness. Use them as weapons of righteousness. He says that in another place earlier in Romans. But really what he's talking about here is concupiscence, concupiscence. Scripture warns so clearly about three different dangers, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And by flesh, by the way, it's far more than uh, sexual lust. We're, we're talking about sinful human nature, the old man, as St. Paul says, the, these desires that, that are impurified. 
So the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and then the pride of life. You, you could really say lust of the eyes is the same thing as desire for possessions, lust of the flesh, desire for pleasure of all kinds. And then the pride of life, that's power. Possessions, pleasure, and power, the three Ps that we don't want. And so this is really the problem here of concupiscence. And we can't pull ourselves up by our own, by dint of our own sheer will. The Jansenists were wrong. This idea that you, you, can, you can live a good life on your own without God's help. Really, you should be able to do this on your own. Not possible. Jansenism is a heresy. But let's look at what the Catechism says here about this very situation. It's very clearly laid out in the Catechism in paragraph 1426. By the way, this, is, this paragraph is in this section of the Catechism that talks about why we have to have the Sacrament of Reconciliation, the Sacrament of Confession, after baptism. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. Let's look at paragraph 1426. In the Catechism, it says, Conversion to Christ, the new birth of baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the body and blood of Christ received as food have made us holy and without blemish. Just as the church herself, the bride of Christ, is holy and without blemish. By the way, where does it say that in the Bible? You can look at St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, especially chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 27. He talks about the bride of Christ, the church. The Catechism goes on to say again in paragraph 1426, Nevertheless, the new life received in Christian initiation has not abolished the frailty and weakness of human nature nor the inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence. And again, there's that $5 word once again. So it doesn't get rid of this. And, and the Catechism says it remains in the baptized concupiscence such that with the help of the grace of Christ, they may prove themselves in the struggle of Christian life. This is the struggle of conversion directed toward holiness and eternal life to which the Lord never ceases to call us. So that was paragraph 1426 in the Catechism. That's a great, great paragraph. Now, you've heard people say, it's a popular meme, uh, sort of a, a jokey phrase that people say, the struggle is real. The struggle is real, bro. It's absolutely true in this case. You, you ask yourself, why would God allow us to struggle and deal with concupiscence, this this tendency to want to drag back down into sin. Why would he allow this to persist after baptism? Why not wipe it all away? Because the Spirit uses this battle to shape us. This is a world of soul making. We've got to engage in this battle. And as it says in this paragraph, CCC 1426, Catechism paragraph 1426, conversion is the battle of a lifetime. It's the journey of a lifetime. It's the fight of a lifetime. And it's a struggle. So, don't think for one second you've made it. You cannot set a cruising altitude in the spiritual life. Even St. Paul, one of the greatest saints of all time, who gave far more of himself for the cause of Christ than you and I have ever done up to this point in our lives. If he's struggling, if he talks about his personal struggle in this way, then you better believe that you and I need to continue to struggle and fight and not be passive in the spiritual battle. Jesus knew this full well. 
And this is exactly why, as the Catechism says, it's exactly why he instituted and established the sacrament of confession in John chapter 20, after his resurrection appearance to the apostles. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Well, how would they know which sins to retain or forgive unless people told them their sins? And this is why also we've got to look up the first letter of John chapter 1. This is very, very crucial because it has a lot to do with Saint, with what St. Paul is talking about here. This is what it says in the first letter of John. I just love the first letter of John. Let's look at chapter 1, starting with verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him. It's Jesus. And we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So, <laughs> John just lays out, I love the Apostle John because he's just so clear there is no fluff with him. He lays it out plain and simple. Now, why does he say this? Why does, why does John say, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar? Because John is dealing with the same thing that the early church had to deal with. And, and again, St. Paul is misunderstood as well. In this regard, we've been speaking about this. There's a group in the early church known as the Gnostics. And they did not believe, they did not believe, they denied, they denied their own immorality. They, they thought they could sin and sin boldly. Why? Because they said the material world is evil. Our, our, our bodies are evil. Our human flesh is evil. So nothing we do really matters anyways, because the whole material world is going to heck in a handbasket. It's all evil. So we can do whatever we want in the body. It doesn't affect our relationship with God. Not the case. That's absolutely not the case. We are sinners. And Christ knew this. That's why he instituted the sacrament of penance, confession. That's really the antidote. This is what we, this is what we need the antidote. Whenever we're snake bit by the enemy, we need that antidote. And, and St. Paul is going to explain in the, in the next chapter, which we'll look at, the glorious reality of the life and the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. He says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus. So he's laid it out bleak. We still have to struggle with sin post-baptism. But guess what? Jesus gives us confession, gives us his forgiveness. And he enables us to live in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that more in chapter 8, which we'll look at in the next episode of our Roman series. But hang tight. Got to pull open now the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's do it. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I actually want to say that we're getting close to the bottom of the mailbag. I need some more questions. We're getting low, so you can send your question via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. 
com, and you can also try tagging me on Twitter on the X app. You can send me a message there, and my handle is at Kale Clark, C A L E Clark with an E, and you can follow me there on that platform too. All right, so this question comes to me uh, via email. I, I like this it's kind of a two part question. This might have to be uh, we'll have to split this up. This is from Christine, who is writing in at that wonderful email address, faith at relevantradio.com. And she writes, hi, Kale. My question is about past lives and deja vu. (laughs) How can I have a deja vu experience where I see myself with someone as children playing together and I know I've been there before with that person? It's confusing. And many people seem to remember past lives, some even as children. How do we explain this, Christine? All right. A couple of things that you're talking about there, Christine. One is deja vu. The other is this idea of past lives. Is that compatible with the Catholic faith? So I'm going to do past lives another time, uh, maybe in a future life. No, I'm only kidding. But uh, I'll deal with that later. Okay, so just we'll bookmark that for now because it's too much for one Q&A. But the short answer is no, <laughs> they're not compatible. We'll talk about why that is uh, in a future episode. But I want to do talk about the concept of deja vu. And I remember this song from the heavy metal band Iron Maiden that I listened to as a kid. It was called Deja Vu. And you know that you've been here before. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm not going to do karaoke kale for you. But you know that you've been here before. And you know that this moment in time is surreal. And you know when you feel deja vu. That that was part of the lyrics. And deja vu is an interesting phenomenon. I think we've all had this experience where I I feel like I've done this before or what's happening right now. I feel like this has happened before. How do we explain this? Well, the term deja vu, as you might have guessed, is a French term. It actually quite literally translates as already seen. Vu has to do with vision. Already seen. And so it's this this sense that we've got that this experience that we're having, it's happened before. And why why is this? What what causes it? Well, some people actually think from a medical perspective, and this could be true from a scientific perspective, what actually might be happening is a temporary, a temporary neurological disorder. So how, how, how does that work? Well, certain chemicals, it is thought perhaps cause an epileptic firing of the frontal lobe of your brain. It kind of fires the neurons. So when you're having this present experience, it it kind of attaches through these neurons to memory centers of the brain prematurely. So as one writer says, it's almost like having an echo in the brain where your, your brain's perceiving this experience and it's kind of recorded twice at the same time. Once in the present, and once in your memory banks, and it creates this feeling or this sensation that you've already experienced this event that's happening right now. Could be. I mean, that's a, that's, that theory sounds pretty good to me. We really don't know what is causing it at a, at a, at a physical level, at a brain level. But um, I think it's interesting to think about this from a theological and spiritual perspective as well, because we know that history sometimes repeats itself, doesn't it? Uh, we know that Mark Twain said history doesn't always repeat itself, but man, it sure does rhyme. And that's actually true in salvation history. We've talked about typology a lot on this program, this idea that people, places, things, events in the old covenant time very often foreshadow 
greater things, people, places, events in the New Covenant time. In our Roman series, we talked about Adam and then Christ being the second Adam in Romans chapter 5. That's just one example. Mary as the new Eve. It goes on and on and on. Jesus is a new Moses too. So many expressions of typology. But here's an interesting thing as well. Somebody who, who did talk about deja vu a lot. I, I, I read this article some time ago by a priest uh, who I believe is based in, in New York City. And it's uh, Father George Rutler. And he talked about the famous baseball player, Yogi Berra, who, of course, was a famous catcher for the New York Yankees in the 1950s. His real name was Lawrence, by the way, but, of course, his nickname was Yogi. And he had so many malaprops. He had so many funny sayings that he used to say. And one of them was, deja vu all over again. Deja vu all over again, which is fantastic. And people even used to invent sayings of Yogi Berra, which he never actually said. In fact, when he heard about this, he said, I didn't say half the things I said. Yet another yogiism. But you know what he's talking about there. So what, what does this mean? It's deja vu all over again. And Father Rutler said that he was kind of broaching a concept that, that's kind of theological. The 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard talked about this. Repetition and recollection. The role of the imagination in relation to time. Because when we think about things in the past, when we contemplate what might be in the future, our, our recollections, a whole bunch of things are limited by our mortal intelligence, our memory. Our memories sometimes are a little bit selective and defective. But with Jesus, it's not that way. He has no limitations. He has no limits. He has a perfect knowledge of the past. Jesus has a perfect knowledge of the future. His prophecies are very accurate because he is, of course, God the Son. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the Father's will. He sees what's going to happen in the future. So when we read the Gospels, we see this laid out very, very clearly. But in the Gospel of John, as Father Rutler points out, it's a little bit different. John is a different animal. And he says John's Gospel is a little bit like the difference between a photograph and a portrait, sort of a painted portrait, because a photograph can convey the personality of its subject. And so can a portrait, but in different ways. And, and one example is when Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, he, in all likelihood, he actually did it uh, at the beginning of Holy Week, the last week of his earthly life. But in John's gospel, it comes at the beginning of his ministry. John kind of moves that event forward in his narrative. Um, and that's okay. Gospel writers had that, that license to be able to do that. And Father Rutler says it's a little bit like when he was a boy, he opened the Cracker Jack box from the bottom so he could get the prize first that he was supposed to, you're supposed to get that as a reward at the end, but he kind of wanted that at the beginning. And that's what our Lord can do. He showed the Magi, his divinity, very early in his life. He revealed the Trinity at his baptism, the transfiguration, sneak preview of, of, of the resurrected life. This is incredible. He prepares his church for what is to come. And there are seven signs in John's gospel, seven really ways of repeating the seven acts of creation in the new creation. It's just a beautiful way to think about it. And Jesus says, I've told you all these things so that when they come to pass, you may believe. How about that? Hey, that's all the time we have today on The Faith Explained. But have a question, you can send it to me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Share it with a friend through the Relevant Radio app. God bless you.
You know, the word is spreading around America. This is the go-to place if you've got a prayer and you want the whole country praying for it. So I invite people to join us every night for the Family Rosary Across America Live. 7 p.m. Central. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. Relevant Radio.